Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran. Katrina Blowers joins me. And Kat, I heard this week that you had already voted. Yeah, actually a couple of weekends ago, I work weekends at Channel 7 in Brizzy. So yeah, didn't really uh, want to, you know, impose on my work day by queuing possibly for, for quite a while. But um, we'll miss out on the democracy sausage. So a little bit sad about that. Boo. Well, you're not alone though. The AEC says more than 3.21 million people have cast a vote at an early voting centre so far and that they've already received well over 2 million postal vote applications as well. So lots of people getting in there early. How did you manage to navigate the Senate tablecloth? though. You know, <laughs> were you okay st- filling out all the little boxes? Yeah, look, I, you know, obviously I think I think that I'm a pretty informed person, but I found it super confusing. And you do have to number so many squares. It's this huge, you know, tablecloth of a thing, as you said. Yeah, there were parties on there that I'd never even heard of before. So I really feel for people who um, probably aren't as engaged in the news as, as you and me. I feel sorry for us and we are engaged in the news, which is why (laughs) on today's show we've got Annika Smethurst, our resident election guru. She's sitting down with Antoinette Latouf. They're going to talk about how you fill in the voting papers as well as a bunch of other things, including key policies that you should consider before you cast your vote. These might sound like issues you don't care about because maybe you don't have kids, but it's about the economy. You know, Mm. both of these get women into work, staying in work, not dropping out when they have children, which actually does boost productivity. Yeah, so just some issues that you probably didn't think were particularly important, but might just be ahead of Saturday. That is on today's show, a cheat sheet just ahead of the weekend. But first, as always, we like to do the headlines. It's Thursday, May 19. Well, as we said, there are just two sleeps to go until all of this election palaver is over. Today, though, we are due to find out about the latest unemployment rate and Labor will release their policy costings. Yeah, so this is after both sides um, have been reacting to the latest wage figures. Um, We know that pay packets grew by 0.7% in the March quarter and 2.4% over the last year. That is below inflation, though, which is sort of the cost of everything, if you want to put it that way, which is currently sitting at 5.1%. Um, here's Scott Morrison emphasising the unemployment rate. Well, wages are going up. Inflation is the challenge. Wages are going to go up because unemployment is coming down and unemployment has fallen to 4%. So opposition leader Anthony Albanese had this to say. Real wages have gone backwards yet again. A fall of 2.7%. What a hit. Yeah, wages and wage increases have been one thing that both the Coalition and Labor have sparred over during this election campaign. And it's a particularly pertinent topic because, as you might have noticed, Kat, as you guys might have noticed, things are getting a little bit more expensive. Meantime, Chinese diplomats have indicated they'll seek talks with whichever party wins on Saturday. Officials saying they see a good opportunity to ease tensions. And speaking of tensions, that video of the Prime Minister bowling over that kid on the soccer field in Tasmania has been absolutely 
absolutely everywhere. I watched it a few times because it's not often that you see things like that. You usually get one moment like that during a campaign and I have been waiting. Uh, Luca, the little boy, happy to report he's absolutely fine. It looked to me though like the Prime Minister tripped and he thought he was going to fall on Luca, which I think would have hurt him a lot more and he's sort of put him in a bit of a bear hug by the looks of it to protect him as he came down, but still uh, quite a a humorous moment. It looked like an absolute accident to me. Obviously, it was. I don't think the Prime Minister's tackling a kid (laughs) on the sports field purposefully. That would be absolutely terrible. Uh, But, you know... Nobody wants to be seen tackling a child just a few days out from an election. It's not a good look. Young Luca, though, he's fine. He's okay. He does have to see that moment replayed over and over again, which I imagine for him would, you know, wouldn't be great getting tackled by the PM. But everybody seems to have walked out of that altercation okay. A key witness in Chris Dawson's murder trial has been on the stand. The woman, who was the 16-year-old babysitter known as JC when Dawson's wife disappeared, and it's the woman he later married. So Chris Dawson is accused of murdering uh, Lynette Dawson in January 1982 and disposing of her body um, before making a missing persons report a month later. Now, JC, who's the key witness there, she told the court that during her time living with the couple, uh, Chris Dawson would often sing cruel songs about his wife and that he used to call her a fatso. JC also detailed the last conversation she had with Lynette Dawson when Lynette confronted the teenager about taking liberties with her husband. Uh, Dawson married JC in 1984, but the pair separated uh, six years later in 1990. Yeah, the two, Dawson and JC, they met when he began teaching her in year 11. I think he taught phys ed at a a Northern Beaches High School, which is um, in Sydney, just north of the CBD. The case against Dawson is that he was motivated to kill his wife because he wanted to enjoy a quote-unquote unfettered relationship with the student. Worth pointing out, Chris Dawson has pleaded not guilty. Yeah, that's an important element of this trial. And for those who've listened to the Teacher's Pet podcast, hugely popular narrative series, true crime podcast in Oz, this case is sort of as a result of that podcast bringing it back into the spotlight. The woman dubbed Australia's worst female serial killer could be found innocent. A new inquiry has been launched into whether Kathleen Folbig killed her four children. There is enough of a question or doubt that this new scientific evidence raises uh, that justifies some form of intervention. That was the New South Wales Attorney-General, Mark Speakman. The 54-year-old Folbig was jailed in 2003 for the murder of her three children, very young children, babies, um, and the manslaughter of a fourth. But last year, 150 medical and scientific experts, including Nobel Prize winners, called for her to be pardoned and released. This follows the discovery her two daughters carried a genetic mutation, which scientists believe could be responsible for the deaths of her children. Now, this mutation has a pretty long name. It's called CALM2G114R, and it's predicted to cause lethal cardiac arrhythmias, which is an irregular heart 
upbeats. So um, this is going to be one to watch and could be potentially pretty huge if it all goes through and uh, and the yeah. outcome is as those scientists and uh, researchers have predicted. Yeah, well, this is a massive case. I mean, Kathleen Folbig is serving a 25-year non-parole period currently. And um, we should say, though, that since the verdict, there have been various appeals that have failed. And there was also an inquiry into her convictions in 2019. Uh, but that inquiry reinforced her guilt. The first war crimes trial has been underway in Ukraine. A 21-year-old Russian tank commander has pleaded guilty to killing an unarmed civilian. Yeah, these are just some horrible stories coming out of Ukraine. Um, this one in particular, it's understood that the Russian soldier saw a 62-year-old man cycling and talking on his phone, and the tank commander was then ordered to kill the man so he wouldn't be able to report them to Ukrainian military authorities. So this 21-year-old now faces life in jail. Ukraine is looking into around 11,000 potential war crimes and Russia is believed to be preparing war crime trials for Ukrainian soldiers as well. So this won't be the last that we hear of this. And to something a little different pop star slash sport news, I guess. Um, singer turned swimmer Cody Simpson. Well, he's booked his spot in the Commonwealth Games, coming third in the 100 metre butterfly final at the Australian titles overnight. This is going to be tight. Temple, couple of strokes to go. He'll get there. He'll get there. Chalmers is second. Simpson is third. That audio, courtesy of nine, Australian record holder Matthew Temple won the race while Olympic 100 metre freestyle champion Carl Chalmers was second as we heard there. But Cody Simpson, he managed to scrape it in with his finish time equaling the world qualifying time for the world championships in Budapest next month. Yeah, and because Kyle Chalmers, um, who came second, is sitting out the championships to rest, it means that Simpson is likely to make his debut as part of the Aussie swimming team. The Dolphins, get this, he only started seriously training 18 months ago. We lived and breathed the sport growing up. You know, took a took a hiatus for the better part of 10 years and came back with just a, a fire that I couldn't put out and still can't put out. I love that because a lot of people have unfinished dreams that they never chase, but he's decided, not. I might have this hugely successful career as a pop star, but swimming is where it's at for me and I'm just not going to rest until I see out, you know, this, this unfinished potential. So his goal is to make the 2024 Olympics. He's 25 now, so that'll mean he's, what, 27? Because that actually makes him quite old because Ian Thorpe was 17 <laughs> when he won his first gold. I know. Listen to us. 27. What? How ancient. Michael Phelps, who's, you know, known to be one of the greatest Olympic swimmers of all time, he made history as the oldest individual gold medalist at the age of 28. So Cody Simpson at 27, he's just going to be scraping in. Uh, and But who knows, he might set new new records for, for the older people who, who want to pursue their dreams. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's impressive because those two didn't have a pop star career, a pretty successful mm. pop star career before they went into swimming. He does. I hate supremely talented people who are good at two very different <laughs> things. I don't How like dare that. he? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Up next, we're going into that voting booth, a bit of a deep dive on how to do it, plus some of the issues that you should be considering ahead of munching on a democracy sausage this Saturday. That's with Tony and Annika.
The countdown is almost over. Election day is now only hours away. And for people like me, that's pretty exciting. It's one of my favourite days of the cycle every three years or a bit further for state elections, Antoinette. Well, I reckon some people may be like you and love politics. <laughs> I suspect many others hate it and probably a fair chunk are indifferent slash bored slash don't care too much. But... Voting really is a privilege, uh, which is a good thing to remember because you'll be joining 17 million Australians in deciding the makeup of our federal parliament. And that's an important point. Although it might seem like it's a two-horse race between Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese, in reality, we actually vote for a local member who will head to Canberra on our behalf and is meant to legislate on our behalf. So unless you live in one of their seats, Cook or Grainsley, you won't actually see their names on your ballot. Those local members are those faces you've seen on cardboard cutouts in front yards. But Annika, this is something that confuses a lot of people I know. Even people who care about politics and I consider pretty smart, they don't know exactly what to do with the two bits of paper. And perhaps they're too embarrassed to admit that they don't know the difference between the Senate and the House of Representatives. But don't worry, your secret is safe with us. Yes, and we've decided to put together a bit of a cheat sheet, an episode which won't tell you how to vote, but will tell you how it works as simply as we can and discuss some of the policies, the main policies that perhaps you might be voting on when you go to the ballots on Saturday. And our special guest and our expert is you, Annika. You're going to spell it all out for us because you are a politics nerd, a press gallery journal of the year, not once or twice, um, and you've even written a book about Scott Morrison. I will try and talk you through this. Hold your hand and then you can forget it all for the next three years. <laughs> Do it all again. So break it down for us, Annika. We'll be handed two ballot papers on Election Day. Which one decides the next government? The one that decides the government is the smaller one. That is the one for the lower house. Now, whichever party wins the lower house that is the one that forms government. That is the one that if you put a number one next to Labor or Liberal, you're basically saying that's who you want to govern. Now, if you don't want to vote for either of those parties, and you don't have to, obviously, your preferences actually do matter. So you've got to mark every box, one through eight, one Uh through six, however many are there, but really consider how much, where you put number two or number three, especially if you're not putting the Labor or Liberal parties first. Because once those people fall out of the race, so to speak, they go and get their second preferences. And the mm. reason they do this is because the system is meant to get, I guess, the least worst option. Not necessarily the person everybody wanted, but the ones that we really didn't want, they go out first. And it's meant to be, I guess, the most palatable option and for the masses. So what happens if you just put one and then don't number to the eight? It'll be thrown out. Mm. So don't, don't do, do it. That. And apparently this is an issue. So remember, mark every box. And that is how you vote in the lower house. Okay. So the second bit of paper, that big, massive ballot, which I still can't believe they haven't figured out a way to make it smaller. That's for the Senate. And how does that one work? Look, you can either vote above the line or below the line. Now, quickly, above the line means you just put in the six parties, there's a lot more that you want to vote for, and they will distribute your preferences based on the party's preferences, so to speak. You can vote below the line, and what that does is you have to fill in more boxes. I believe it's 12, they will tell you on election day, but it means that let's say the Liberal Party put up you and I as candidates (laughs) and you get to go above me on the ballot paper. It means that 
someone might go, look, I want to vote for that party, but I actually want to vote for Annika ahead of Antoinette. So you can, if you are close enough to know people within the Greens or within Labor Party, and you actually think, I don't like the candidate they've put first, but gee, I like the person they've put second. It gives you a chance to actually give them your first preference vote. Let's just take a moment to really unpack why these preferences matter. Firstly, if you vote one way in the lower house, you don't have to vote that way in the upper house. If you go to the upper house and you get more than one vote, as we've just said, you can put more numbers in the box. The voting system is different. So there's only going to be one person elected in your lower house seat. You live in a seat, everybody's billeted into Mm -hmm. a group of about 100,000 people and one person will win that seat and go to Canberra on our behalf. The way the Senate works, which is the big bit of paper, is that these people represent our state. Now, it's meant to be so that places like Tasmania and more populous states like New South Wales have the same number of senators so it's all even and they're meant to vote with that in mind. They don't always, they Mm. usually follow their party, but Mm -hmm. that's why it's meant to be even and it means that we all get 12 of these people. Now, only six of them are up every election because they get six-year terms, they get double the amount. Just to confuse everybody. (laughs) They have half the, you know, they get longer there, but we only vote for half of them every time. It's easier for smaller parties to get up and you might have seen that in the Senate. There's bigger crossbench. We've had Clive Palmer's party, we've had the Jackie Lambies, we've had the Darren Hinches. All these people seem to get in there. Not necessarily a bad thing. They've been called uneducated swill and all these sort of things, these independents. Look, it does slow stuff down, but it does mean you can vote for these parties and they might actually have a chance. So it's proportional representation. Mm. They have to get a certain amount of votes to get in. It'll differ depending on what state you're in and everything like that. But preferences matter because in the Senate, there's a bigger chance that you might actually be represented by somebody that isn't a member of the major party. And a quick summary of the difference between what they do in the Senate and what they do in the House of Reps. House of Reps is where uh, the government have the majority of the day. So even if there's no clear majority, they get a sort of understanding from independents that they will pass their bills, uh, especially financial bills. It's where legislation is usually introduced. It's where we see question time. It's where the Prime Minister comes from. It's where everyone yells at each other, if you've probably seen it on television. They're a little bit more um, robust down there. They like to think they're a little bit more gentlemanly in the Senate. Bills go into the lower house, usually. They get uh, debated. That's where the Prime Minister is and the Opposition Leader. Then they need to go to the Senate for approval. Now, sometimes I'm just going to stop there because just to point out that lower house and house of representatives is often used interchangeably. Yes, lower house and house of reps, Senate and upper house. If you vote the same way and let's say the Labor Party get a majority in the lower house and the upper house, it goes through very quickly because you know they're going to win every vote. If there's difference, and we, we've seen this through heaps and heaps of parliaments now, it means that it's a real check and balance because they have to negotiate. You know, mm. They'll go, well, we introduce this bill and then there could be people upstairs in the upper house that go, no, we don't like this, we want you to change this. Can you amend this little bit? So it slows it down. So often people will vote differently in the lower house to the upper mm. house to try to you know, spread the love, I guess. And there is a lot of hype around those independents or teals. What hope do they have? For, that's, I mean, that's my first part of the question. And secondly... <laughs> It's a bit confusing when it comes to preferences. If you want to win a seat, and you can get more than 50% of the vote, more than 50% of people in Antoinette's electorate say, I want her to go to Canberra on my behalf. It's easy. You go. We don't worry about preferences. It probably won't happen for most of the teal candidates. They might get, say, 30%, which is often what 
the major parties get. So then to get them a bit more, we go through preferences. So do they have a chance? Yeah, I think some of them will get up. I think Zoe Daniels, the former ABC reporter in Goldstein's looking pretty good. North Sydney might get an independent. Perhaps Dave Sharma might lose. He's a Liberal in Sydney. There will be a few. There always is at every election. Okay, so let's get to the policies um, because some of the policies that voters are telling pollsters that they're worried about include things like cost of living, climate change and the economy. So let's nut out some of those kind of big differentiators. We'll start with economy and cost of living. What are the two major parties offering? Now, remember, this is like not medical advice. I'm not telling you how to vote, but maybe it'll just get you thinking about some of the things they've promised and then you can go and do your own sort of investigation before you head to the polls. Look, Labor have said they will have, based on their announcements, what we know so far, probably larger debts and deficits than the coalition, but they argue that that extra spending will actually boost productivity and help us get out of the black hole we're in in terms of the economy. So the things they can't control is no matter who you vote for, and they've both agreed on this, interest rates will go up. So if you're a homeowner... Neither party can promise that they will go down. Inflation is high, as we know. Um, Anthony Albanese has said that he would like to see the minimum wage go up in line Mm -hmm. with that. Now, you'll have different views on that depending on whether you're an employer or an employee. Cost of living is a really hard one. Obviously, it's a huge issue for people at the moment. Stuff is so expensive. But there's only so much they can do. So both the government and Labor have promised discounts for drugs. So if you regularly need medication... Scripts will drop either $12 or $10. I think Labor are giving a slightly bigger discount there. One thing people always talk about is power bills for households, that it, you know, it's really expensive. So Labor's promising that by 2025, they'll cut the price of a power bill for households by almost $300 a year compared to with what they are today. The coalition hasn't said an exact figure. They're going to try and quote, work to reduce prices. So there's a more tangible one, I guess. It really depends on what stage and phase of life you're at, how much debt and deficit actually means to you. But that's what they're promising. Go and have a look into it if the economy is how you vote. And speaking of stage of life, childcare is Mm. another big issue. Talk us through the differences. Something I never cared about until recently. But yes, look, um, the government tinkered with their subsidy recently. And basically, if you earn up as a family to about a certain amount of money, $300,000 down, it's sort of tapered, right? If you are a a lower income family, you can get up to 90% of your um, childcare paid for. And it sort of goes down as families earn more. Now, Labor have come swooping on in and they're actually going to promise households who earn up to half a million, $530,000. Basically, they will get some sort of assistance, which is a lot more than what the coalition have offered. You would have to say if you're just voting on childcare, Labor's is better. You're going to get more money back. It's simple. It can be worth, you know, up to $10,000 more for some families. So if that is literally why you vote, I'm not going to tell you to vote for Labor because there is something the Coalition have offered which is a little bit different, um, and that's paid parental leave. The Coalition will give you a few extra weeks. I think they'll give you 20 weeks pay at sort of a minimum wage. They'll also mean your dad can take it, like the dad or the mum. They'll sort of mix it up. And at the moment, there's a cap, and it really affects women. So if you're earning less than $150,000 a year, you can get this sort of uh, parental leave. If you earn more than that and you're a woman, it doesn't matter how much your husband earns, you sort of sub out of the scheme. Now, if you're the primary breadwinner, it doesn't seem fair, I sort of think. 
that women, it should be on a family income, not just a woman's income. The coalition are going to boost that so more families will actually be eligible for money. And these might sound like issues you don't care about because maybe you don't have kids, but it's about the economy. You know, Mm. both of these get women into work, staying in work, not dropping out when they have children, which actually does boost productivity. And that's what Labor is saying, that yes, they're going to pay heaps and heaps more for childcare, but at the same time, it's going to help all of us by having more people out there working. And hopefully less in casual and precarious work situations. Mm. Mm. Um, and then um, thirdly, climate. And, and we know historically that perhaps climate change policy doesn't determine elections, um, but there is a bit of a kind of generational shift. Um, younger people care more about climate. What are the points of difference here? Labor has an emissions reduction goal of 43% by 2030, which is actually less than the 45% they promised at the last election, but it's a lot more than the coalition. So the coalition stuck to its, uh, you know, it was very keen on 26% decrease by 2030. That's based on 2005 levels. Now, just before that Glasgow climate meeting that was very controversial, they did sign up to net zero by 2050. But if you go on the rhetoric alone, and that's your sort of where you you want to put your vote, you'd have to say Labor are more ambitious. Mm. These things are hard because, you know, it's all predictions. Do we know if they're going to get there? Will they get there? We don't know. But Anthony Albanese was asked this week, if he doesn't win, what's his legacy going to be? And he said fighting for climate change. So based on their commitments, Labor's is a little bit stronger. So if that's something you're looking for, you'd probably want to go read a bit about their policy. If that's something that doesn't interest you, then vote on something else. But these are the issues we keep getting told. The economy, cost of living, climate, you know, they're the ones that are probably going to dominate this time. Okay, so and my one bit of polling advice is make a friend like Annika Smithhurst because she has just answered all of my questions. Thank you so much, Annika. No worries. Happy voting. Get a sausage. Listener.